Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host today, and my guest is Dr. Brian Nixon. If you haven't tuned in before, we've been tackling some really interesting questions, and it's going to keep getting better. Uh, we just keep getting supplied with some really great questions, and we roll the die. We attack it with no prep. That's our sort of our calling card, and then we go from there. So if you haven't heard the story of the die, you have to tune into a few podcasts before this one. But it's quite interesting, I assure you. And we have the die sitting on the table before us. I'm going to actually have Dr. Nixon roll it today, and we're going to see what we get. And, and Luke, I just want to underscore something you said, you know, that there's no prep. And there truly is no prep. The only thing I have is my Bible. I have my phone in case I'm called, and hopefully never on the, the broadcast. But I don't even know what the questions are. So what's exciting for me is I get to roll the die. But I have no idea what the questions are. So I, you always get this smirk on your face like, oh, this is a good one. Folks, I'm completely clueless through this whole process. So here we go. And, oh, and go ahead. One, one other thing is that while I get these questions and I put them on there, I put them on an Excel spreadsheet and I studiously avoid looking at them at all. And I print the sheet off literally about five minutes before it's time to come to the show so that I can keep track of which questions we've answered and which ones we have left. And I keep a running roster of questions that I just throw on there and I do my final prep after every show. And so I don't touch this sheet for an entire week. And then when we come back to it, we roll the die and off we go. Awesome. See, now you have an insider view as to what <laughs> happens on Squawk. Here's the die though. It's the nice blue die. Here we go. Ah, five. I don't think we've had a five. I don't know if we've had a five. I mean, it doesn't look familiar. Five doesn't look familiar for some reason. It doesn't. I know we've had a six. We've had multiple fours. We've yes. had a one, a 12. Yeah. I don't remember. I sh you know what? I should add that to my spreadsheet about which question it was, because I usually take away the number of the question, and I throw another question in the old number slot. Yeah. And, and, and remember, we that. were also curious if the die was loaded. That's true. We, we were going, you know, <laughs> we're getting the same number a few times. So, but I don't remember a five. Excellent. Well, let's see which question we have here. Oh, man. There's a conspiracy here, Brian. We, uh -oh. Last week, if you haven't already heard it, we answered uh, a question from a student about pre-trib mid-trib and post-trib and 30 minutes as you must know is not nearly long enough to do anything about that except to pique your interest the five today landed on the question which is biblical pre-mill or post-mill and why okay. <laughs> so there's a preoccupation with eschatological things and so yes so so let's let's again as our, as is our custom luke we we stand back and we kind of define our terms and look at the big picture so premillennialism um, adheres to the idea that there is a literal millennial kingdom which will take place for a thousand-year period. Generally speaking, the earliest church commentators and, and folks adhered to this form. And maybe we could get into that later. But then after Augustine came what we now know as post-millennial. And it's this idea that, and again, there's themes and variations here, right. because this is where it gets confusing. As you know, Luke, it, it, it isn't just as you know black and white as a lot of people want it to be. But post-millennialism 
in its various guises doesn't see a real literal thousand years, but they see it as kind of like an era, an age. And so the thousand is more of a symbolic place marker. And it's this era of the church. And in historic post-millennial understanding, everything was getting better. The church was growing and everything was getting wonderful and, and fine and, and such. Then some bad things started to happen during the <laughs> Middle Ages and things weren't getting as good as they thought it was. And so people started to scratch their head and then re kind of configure their understanding of post-millennial eschatology. And so that has kind of went into uh, some subgroups, what we'd call preterists. Hmm. And preterists believe that the beginning of of Revelation was really for the time, before 90 AD, really before 70 AD. And then the very end of Revelation is really just for the future. So for most preterists, they believe the vast majority of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the early church, and we're just waiting for Christ's second coming. But to try to unpack all these nuances of both, we literally, there are, there are multiple, there's different <laughs> layers of that. So here, here's my take. And then obviously, Luke, you're going to chime in as well. My take is the best, clearest, and historically verifiable understanding of Revelation and other cross-textual references is what I would believe in a pre-millennial eschatology. And that is that there's a literal thousand-year reign that Christ will come, his second coming, and there will be a literal thousand-year reign whereupon there's going to be the Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon at the very end. And then at the very end, you could flip to the last couple chapters of Revelation and you will find the new heaven and new earth, the restored and redeemed kingdom. So there's a variety of reasons why I would believe in a literal thousand-year reign. One, because I think to over-spiritualize, let's say, an amillennial, and I know this question didn't ask about amillennialism. I was going <laughs> to say a little prayer of thanks for that because it, it's hard enough to unpack two. two. One, let alone two, but three. So yeah. thank you for only asking pre and post. Right, exactly. <laughs> And I was going to say, you know, amillennialism, which really looks at Revelation as a spiritual understanding of, of or a cosmic, you know, spiritual right. battle, both pre and post millennial have what I call a historical reference point. They, they believe it's going to, it's literally unfolded. So I think Revelation is, is clear in really giving us a futurist perspective of the millennial that the millennial is going to be a literal thousand-year reign. Of course, there's lots of people out there that would, would you know, argue with me on this point. Let me tell you or show, give you an example of some of the difficulties that arise with not the preterist view of post-millennial that I explained, but what we called historic post-millennial and that they were viewing it as kind of, you know, the church increasing. And generally... I absolutely love this commentator. He was from 10th Presbyterian, I mean, a church with a lineage of amazing expository preachers. Um, you know, more recently, Boyce and, and, you know, Donald Gray Barnhouse before that. So it's an amazingly solid church. 
But way back when, there was a fellow by the name of Albert Barnes. And Albert Barnes was a fabulous commentator. I mean, I use Albert Barnes for most things. But when you get to the book of Revelation, because he adhered to <laughs> post-millennial eschatology, he started to attach some really interesting you know, connections to historical figures. So it became very one-sided in a sense, because he was very Protestant, very as we are, you know, Luke, you and I are very Protestant. But what he was doing is he was interpreting Revelation through the lens, if you will, of Protestantism. And so when it got to the two witnesses, he didn't come down heavily, but he alluded to that maybe those two witnesses were Calvin and Luther. I certainly hope not. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> And and so and so your 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 reaction was like you go huh, well then how does that you know describe everything else that revelation and of course Albert Barnes would then say well you know the rest is symbolic or we've got to do it you know so on and so forth so the fact that you're alluding to or maybe hoping that maybe just maybe these two witnesses could have been Luther and Calvin. I mean, again, that's a very singular Protestant way of interpreting that, you know, right. reading into the text. But secondly, it discounts a whole host of other factors that are brought into this. So I guess, and I'm, I promise I'll let you, you chime in here, Luke. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is premillennialism has what I think the clearest and most exegetical, historical, grammatical way of approaching the text. I think when you come to post-millennial, you really start have to stretching it and putting different things here to make sense of it. And how, okay, if it's over a period of time, who are these people and what's going on? And so what you get is this kind of historical, symbolic juxtaposition that, that mm. doesn't always work well together in your interpretation. Though we clearly understand that Revelation is a symbolic book. It's full of symbols. It's full of metaphors. We get that. But a more consistent means of interpretation, I think, is a pre-millennial eschatology, a literal thousand-year reign. But that's the big picture. Luke, now you you dive in. I really appreciate that, Brian. And I really like that you you went back to Augustine because that's that's really where the post-millennial view I wouldn't say it was popularized at that time, but it was articulated. Mm -hmm. And the impetus behind that was, of course, that with the growth of Christianity, you had all of these pagan religions mm -hmm. that were on the wane, much to the chagrin of the Roman Empire at the time, uh, prior to Augustine, of course. And then right. after Constantine, there's actually an interesting book. And I remember the main title. I do not at the, the moment recall the, author, the subtitle, yeah. but it was destroyer of the gods and it's speaking specifically of a christian triumphalism that was happening as they saw the effect of the christian teaching sort of taking over the world and so there was this great optimism mm -hmm. interestingly enough this view that sort of takes the cultural foundation of what's happening at the time and imposes that on the text right which, you know, honestly, we do that a lot ourselves. We're just more fortunate in that we live in a later period. Augustine actually learned this view from Ambrose, mm -hmm. who 
was of the Alexandrian school in mm -hmm. the way that he interpreted the text. Allegorical, right. Exactly. And we, as like Calvary College, we would be, if we were to define ourselves, we'd be of the Antiochian school, mm -hmm. where we believe in a literal rendering of the text. And that really makes the huge difference between the two views. But as you've clearly pointed out, a non-literal rendering, you can come up with almost anything you need to. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen time pass and events take place to which people have historically associated great significance, we now have enough information to look back and say, you know, that did not properly encapsulate everything, as you pointed out so articulately, where you can make an assignment that makes sense for the time. Right. And then it only takes a few things. We dealt with this when we talked about Revelation 12 and who the woman was there. Right. How that they just didn't have a way to, I mean, they could have arrived at the proper view, but it would have been an extremely, seen as extremely abstract to many of the people that were there. And there would have been very little, if any, cultural connection. Right. That doesn't mean that anyone gets a get out of jail free card for improperly interpreting the Bible, but we do understand where some of our theological predecessors have come up with their views. Yeah. And, and let me just back up. We both love history and appreciate it, but you know, history to know where we've been allows us to, to go forward. Right. And so the question is, we've both mentioned Augustine. And so the question always comes up, well, before Augustine, what, what was the prevailing view? Exactly. And obviously we would have to say, well, you could go back to, you know, the, the Bible itself, Revelation, but you know, what, how did people approach Revelation? Well, the earliest commentary we have on the book of Revelation is by uh, Victor, Victor of Petua. And Victor of Petua lived roughly in the late 200s. So let's say 270, 280. We think he was martyred as a Christian under the Diocletian um, persecution of Christians. We don't know a whole bunch about Victor. His official is Victorinus, you know, the Latin term, but right. Victor, Victor of Petua. And Victor was the first person that we're aware of in the late 200s that wrote a book a commentary on Revelation. So the very first known commentary on Revelation was written in the late 200s, um, which is significant. You know, this is this is around the time frame of Augustine. It's around the time frame roughly of Jerome, um, though they came a little bit after. So Victor was before, lived before Augustine and Jerome. Later, Jerome actually retranslated it into Latin, because Victor, by the way, I think it was from Slovenia area uh, of middle part of Europe. But Victor actually takes more of what we would know a pre-millennial understanding. He talks about in his commentary, which you could read later versions of it. We don't have the earliest version. We have obviously ones that were based upon uh, Jerome's work, translation of it. But it, he seems to indicate that the at least in his part of Europe and in his sphere of other Christians, in what is more what we would know a pre-millennial understanding, you know, of this thousand year of paradise, this millennial kingdom, and then, you know, the, the battle of Armageddon. Now, if you were to read and look at his commentary, there's some areas that just go over your head. It's like, what, you know, what is this guy talking about? 
But that's how it was in the early church. Things hadn't settled yet. You know, there was a lot of divergent views and a lot of debate and argument over theology or the nature of Christ or... Or really whether or not revelation was even supposed to be accepted. I think the earliest reference we have in the patristic age, second century to eighth century, is in an apocryphal work about the book of Revelation, which is rather interesting. It quotes the book of Revelation before the later patristic quotations do. Right. But as far as commentary, that's that's really that's really an interesting thing. Yeah, it is. And and so all the way to point now now let me be clear. I'm not saying Victor fought, you know, interprets it like, you know, modern, you know, <laughs> right. premillennial scholars. Not at all. But he has hints of of this thousand year real, you know, of a literal thousand year period. And though there's other areas that, you know, mix allegory with history and all of this stuff. We could say that it seems to be that pre-Augustine, that using Victor as an example, that a, a good portion of individuals adhered to a pre-millennial understanding. It brings up a really interesting point, too, mm-hmm. because the Antiochene literalism actually post-dates the Alexandrian allegorical stuff, which started with Origen and Clement. Oh, Clement. So, Clement of Rome. Yes. Both of those gentlemen were of the allegorical idea largely. And so to have somebody who, at least as far as we know, because mm-hmm. we don't really know a lot about Victor, who's not necessarily from the anti the area of Antioch, right? to have that interpretation potentially before it became codified at Antioch is right. an extremely interesting it is. thing. And, and, you know, what's interesting is when you read Jerome, who obviously for our listeners who, who may not know, he is the fellow that, in, that retranslated the Bible into Latin. He was the guy that left Europe, went down to Bethlehem, worked with Jewish scholars, and gave right. us the, what's called the Vulgate. But Jerome, when he was dealing with Victor's work, he he clearly stated, here's what I disagree with, here's what I agree with, but it's worth, you know, translating. And and he would leave off some areas, but he would tell you why he's leaving them off. I don't think this is right. But when you read Victor's work, you know, you just really have to scratch your head and go, huh, you know, this is interesting from as a historical document, but you also have to say it's not clearly what we understand as as you know, modern understanding of premillennial eschatology, but it definitely has hints of it. So, but I also think you bring up a very valid point, Luke, in saying that a lot of these early Christian communities didn't have the book of Revelation. As you know, it was contested. And as as you know, Luke, that when Constantine, who didn't, you know, make contrary to a lot of people say, well, he, right. he's the guy that made Christianity legal. I mean, he's the made the fish origin. He's not. He's the guy that made it acceptable that you could do that. But he, he tapped the shoulder of a guy by the name of Eusebius. And Eusebius was a scholar that, that Constantine said, hey, go out and figure out what you Christians believe because you're driving me crazy. Plus, my mom's a Christian. And I just, I just need to know right. who's in my kingdom here. So Eusebius is the fellow that helped bring together the Council of Nicaea. He helped us codify what books of the Bible we accepted and so on and so forth. All that to say Eusebius was important. Well, Eusebius himself had problem with the book of Revelation. He didn't want it included in the canon of Scripture. And he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of other people that didn't want. Even later, Luther 
Martin Luther questioned Revelation. As he, well as a couple others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he, you know, Revelation has always had a very suspect placement within within the canon. But, but my point is, is that not all communities, not all Christian communities, a actually had the book in the early right. church, nor did they value it. So it would account for some of the divergent and different views that we have in the early church, pre, pre-Augustine. Because one community, they didn't even have Revelation. They're going off all these other books. Another community may have Revelation, and so they're basing some theology on it. It's good to know that these two communities wouldn't be on the same page regarding the end times. It's a great point. I, I actually did a little bit of research on a community in the Ireland area where all that they had initially was the Gospel of John. Right. They didn't have the other Gospels right. at all. And the way that it shaped their Christian community, I mean, if you're only going to have one Gospel— you know, not to say that the other ones aren't great, but yeah. John is John is not a bad place to be. That's exactly right. And there's so much there and so unique, you know, as a non-synoptic. But the way that Christian's theology is shaped, if they're being people of the book, which we've classically been known to be, mm-hmm. you're absolutely going to have aberrant views if you don't have the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And it's like that today. Even people who have the entire Bible who choose to either not pay attention to a certain portion of it or to improperly interpret a portion of it end up in an aberrant place. Mm -hmm. Like as we mentioned, the preterists. And for those of you who may not immediately know what it is, Brian, you touched on that, but they basically think that everything or most of it that is described even clear up to the abomination of desolation happened in 70 AD. And there's different variations of this, but that's the big part. And I found something really interesting. I'll just have a nerd moment here. Um, <laughs> I was looking through Usher's Annals of the World, mm-hmm. and I didn't notice it before because I've gone through that book multiple times on different things. But as he's relating the last times of Christ, just before his crucifixion, he has these placards that he's inserted between his chapters that say quite clearly, this is the first, second, third, and fourth progressively Passovers since the beginning of the ministry of Christ, and he starts labeling it as the different years in the 70th week of Daniel. Hmm. Hmm. And so at that time, even then, he must have been looking more at a preterist view in order to think that the tribulation, as described in Scripture, not being this future set of seven years that we're thinking about, but something that had at least partially transpired in the past. And you know, when he was writing, you know, this is post-Reformation. This mm-hmm. is something that uh, is much more recent, relatively. So these views are widely divergent, and they've probably become more solidified now than they ever were. Oh, yeah. Preterism is—I is, is I, I would say a lot of people have scholars, let's say, particularly in the Reformed circles who used right. to abide by post-Moly eschatology. I think they've kind of seen some of the the waywardness of interpretation. So a lot of them have moved towards preterism as their their right. they the say, oh no, it's historical, but it all happened before seventy A.D., culminating with the destruction of the temple. Now, can I can I can yeah. I piggyback something really quick on that, Luke? And it's this: normally you would go, wow, you know, okay, that that sounds like a great interpretation. You know, it, it would make sense that John's writing to people who understood the symbols 
and understood that they were going through this great persecution and so on and so forth. Here's the problem, though, and here's the, the huge problem with preterism. They've got to demonstrate mm. without a shadow of a doubt that Revelation was written before 70 AD. <laughs> exactly. Most scholars, most scholars in history, tradition has told us that it was the latter book that John wrote, not an earlier book. Exactly. So most scholars say, no, Revelation was probably written around 80, 90 AD. And, and here's something else that, that really doesn't do it for me with preterism, that I scratch my head and go, guys, if you could answer these two questions, you, you may have a good argument. So you, you, have to, you have to prove without a shadow of a doubt uh, that, that it was written. And, and some scholars have tried. I think I forgot the gentleman's first name, but it, I think his last name was Gentry. And he was trying to show and prove and demonstrate that Revelation was written before 780. But even the larger question within is, if you could prove it, then corresponding you would still have the problem of corresponding all these different facets to events that happened previous to you know 70 AD because then you have to take literal and you know literalness and then break it up into symbolic so it's like right. well where did where did one third of the earth you know get this and where did where when did, did this? the battle of armageddon happen exactly and why and, are there still unsaved people here exactly <laughs> Exactly. So, so you still deal with some major hermeneutical issues when you take a preterist view. Now, the preterist would say, well, if it was written after 70 AD, like you premillennialists agree, he would clearly have mentioned the destruction of mm -hmm. the temple. You know, John would have clearly referenced it. Well, he doesn't. He, to our knowledge, he, he has no reference to the destruction of the temple. So the earlier date people who say Revelation was written earlier than 70, they said, well, this is clearly written before 70 AD because he makes no reference to that. If I can say something yes. about that, I was actually doing some research this week because some of the research that I'm looking at is the identity of early Christian communities, late antique, early medieval. And for this particular paper, I had to go back into the time of what we're happening to be talking about right now. And they said several different scholars stated that the impact of the destruction of the temple on the Christian community was actually extremely minimal. Hmm. And based on later commentary, like Eusebius and a couple of others, they considered it to be the time in which the promises of God had passed from the Israelite people right. to the church, mm -hmm. which helps us land in a different kind of error if we go too far down that path. But they said it was the Bar Kokhba revolt which happens later when they accept a different Messiah, like 135, that really caused a break between the Christian community. But by the time John's writing Revelation, which we think to be right at the end of the first century, there had already been an anathema that had been put out by the Patriarchate in Jerusalem that had forbidden through force of an inclusion in the benedictions Christians to participate in synagogue worship mm -hmm. by basically anathematizing to use a, a, a Greek term, anathematizing Christ, the doctrine of Christ, um, the person of Christ. And so they, they needed to get the Christians out of their assembly. Now that is dated 80 to 90 AD. So by the time John's writing, you know, 20, possibly 30 years later, there's already been a major break between the communities. And so the relevance of the destruction of the temple mm -hmm. already being fairly minimal to the Christian community 
doesn't really affect their interactions with the synagogues. And at this point now, their interactions from the synagogues have been disrupted a couple of different ways. The church is largely becoming predominantly Gentile, and the early Judeo-Christians, they almost become irrelevant. The ones who still wanted to stay within Judaism and wanted to keep keeping the law, they became sort of their own little isolated mm -hmm. community to which the things of the Jews were important, but they weren't liked by the Jews, and the Gentiles didn't know why they kept keeping the law. So there's a really big historical argument right. for why it wouldn't even matter to the majority of the people that he's writing to in Asia Minor. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's a great point, Luke. And I think, I, you know, again, I know we're out of time here, but I think, you know, when you look at preterism, there's some very, very, including what you just described, some very large, difficult, you know, rationale of placing it before 70 AD. All said and done, we've spent the last half hour <laughs> stating why we adhere to a premillennial eschatology. But I, again, just to summarize, I personally, I think it's the clearest and most, um, you know, the best way to interpret the text historically and grammatically because you run into less problems to to see it as a future a future kingdom the millennial kingdom as opposed to something that was ongoing or stretching out which leads to a lot of problems right and so i'll just chime in with my closing here basically but i, I want to say this that jesus sitting on the throne of david is a literal promise that has to be fulfilled literally and the throne of david is not in heaven it's on earth and it's the place where david from which he ruled and christ is going to sit on that throne literally the post mill basically says Christians have to bring in the kingdom, which is where we get a lot of other odd mm -hmm. things. And then after we've done all the work, Christ comes and he reigns. But the New Testament seems to point to the fact that we don't bring in anything. The world gets worse and worse. And then Christ shows up, does away with evil for that period of time, binds Satan. And then you go into a physical time of a thousand years where he says, this is how it's done, boys. This is the stone that mm -hmm. smashes the idol, right? This is the stone not made with hands, and the government's going to rest on my shoulders. There's so many promises that would have to be allegorized. And I'll just say this to sort of drive the point home. If your parents said, hey, you know, tomorrow we're going to go get some candy. You're like, okay, cool. Then tomorrow comes. You're like, well, tomorrow doesn't really mean tomorrow, and candy really doesn't mean candy. And so I made you this promise, and you were expecting something literal and physical from me, but uh, I'm going to spiritualize that because that's a, a more valid way to interpret mm -hmm. it. This is what would happen to the Jewish people who are expecting the fulfillment of covenants just as literally as they occupied the land that they physically, literally occupied. There is to be a physical, literal occupation of their land again by the King of Kings when he restores that land to them. Mm -hmm. And so that's my understanding. That's why I stick to a, a premillennial view in which you have a literal interpretation mm -hmm. because there's no precedence to all of a sudden switch to a symbolic interpretation when you're dealing with the last week of Daniel, when mm -hmm. everything else has been to Spot the on. point yep. on the calendar and to the point when it comes to every physical instance that's been given. Yeah. So 30 minutes has flown by. Yeah, flown by. And all I could say is Maranatha. <laughs> <laughs> right? Even And how does John end it, right? Yeah. Even so right. come, Lord Jesus. So at this point, if you have your own questions and you'd like to send them in, we'd love to be able to tackle them here. If you want to reach out to us, reach us at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. This has been Squawk, and once again, thank you for listening.